So uh, one of my uh, favorite books uh, is The Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever read this book. It's actually, it goes all the way back to the year 1678. It was written by a man by the name of uh, John Bunyan. And it, it's one of the most popular books that's ever been published. Uh, the story is written in the form of an allegory. Uh, which means names and places uh, have symbolic meaning. And, and the story tells the journey of a man named Christian uh, who was warned about the imminent danger that he found himself in living in the city of destruction and how he needed to flee the city of destruction and go to the celestial city. So Christian is, is moved by this warning and he begins this journey uh, toward the celestial city, but his journey will not be Easy. Christian will face uh, many challenges and dangers along the way. Not long after fleeing uh, the city of destruction, Christian finds himself in a bog called the Slough of Despond, where, where he begins to sink under the weight of his guilt and his shame until a, a man named Help appears and extends a hand to Christian and, and lifts him out of the mire and helps him continue on his way. Then a little bit later in the journey, Christian encounters a man by the name of Worldly Wise Man who tells Christian that he has no need to continue on this tenuous journey toward the celestial city, that it would be much easier, that he would be much happier uh, if he went the easier route. And so Worldly Wise Man uh, reroutes Christian to uh, the village of morality where he is pointed in the direction of Mr. Legality for help. But Christian soon discovers that moralism, that the, the Mr. Legality is, is no easy, is, it's not an easier way at all. And thankfully, his friend Evangelist shows up to set him back on the right path. Later, Christian, self, Christian finds himself in the Valley of Humiliation, where he has to contend with the monster Apollyon, and then shortly thereafter enters the Valley of the Shadow of Death. But in the Valley of the Shadow of Death, he, he meets a fellow pilgrim on the way to the Celestial City, a, a, a friend named Faithful, and together they continue on the journey until they come to the town of Vanity, where the people mock them and ridicule them, and Faithful is actually martyred. For his faith and Christian is placed in jail and yet he escapes and continues on his way and meets another pilgrim named Hopeful and together the two of them journey on until they come to Doubting Castle and they meet this giant called Despair who throws them in the dungeon of despair and together they remember that they possess that they have been given the key of promise and they again escape and continue on their journey. And, and so goes the story. The Pilgrim's Progress is this vivid illustration of the Christian life. And the story that Bunyan tells is layered and loaded with meaning. It's kind of like reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've ever read any of C.S. Lewis's works, you, you find that every time you read them, there's more and more layers to the story. There's more and more symbol, symbolism that you can find each time you read it. But a few things are clear at first reading of, of Bunyan's pro, uh, story, The Pilgrim's Progress, that he, that he really wants to emphasize, one of which is that uh, we, like Christian, are on a journey. We are on a journey, and this journey that every Christian is on is, is fraught with challenges and difficulties. This, the journey of the Christian life uh, is not easy. Jesus said this, he said, enter through the narrow gate. 
For the gate is wide and the road broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life. And few find it. The road that leads to life, it requires endurance. In the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, there are many points along Christian's journey when he finds himself in danger, when he finds himself on the brink of despair. And I think it's fair to say that Christian would not have made it to the celestial city were it not for the help of his fellow pilgrims. And this is another major theme that we see in Bunyan's story. He's highlighting the role that fellow believers play in helping one another press on to the end of life's journey. Scripture tells us, watch out, brothers and sisters. So that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today. So that none of you is hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is in fact a major emphasis throughout the New Testament. And it's the focus of our time this morning. And so again, if you're, if you're new with us, we're on week four of a six uh, week series where we're looking at six core values for our church. These are six values that we want to build our church upon. They're like the foundation. They're the pillars of our church. And so far we've seen that if we really want to become this diverse family of disciples living to proclaim Jesus that we say we want to be, then, then we have to anchor ourselves on the word of God and upon prayer and upon Jesus Christ, who is the cornerstone and, and the one who reconciles us all together by his blood. And so we've seen that we're a church that values life-giving truth. That was week one. And in week two, we saw that we value kingdom-advancing prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come. And so we want to be a church that, that prays that kind of prayer. And then, and then last week, John Tavius uh, unpacked this, this reality that we want to be a church that, that values multicultural unity in Christ. That the picture that we get in the New Testament is of uh, uh, the church is people from every tongue and language and tribe. People who were uh, very culturally different from one another reconciled through the blood of Christ. We've been brought together, one new man in Christ. We value that as a church. And this morning, we focus our attention on a fourth value, which is transformative gospel relationships. We are a church that believes a primary way that we will grow and mature and be changed to look more and more like Jesus, to live more and more like Jesus, is through one another. It's really hard to faithfully follow Jesus in isolation. One of the primary ways that God keeps us believing and keeps us pursuing him is through one another. See, there's, there, there's still this lie, I, I'm afraid, I, I think especially in, in our corner of the world, there's still this lie kind of going around town that teaches that, that Christianity is a just me and Jesus thing. There's this lie that says, well, it's just me and Jesus and that's all I need. And I'm here to tell you that that is wrong. That unequivocally, the, the, the New Testament is clear that you can't do this alone. Scripture shows us time and again that we are called into fellowship with one another. It's commanded and it's critical. We need one another. And so if you have your Bibles, open them up with me to Hebrews chapter 10 where Kristen just read for us. And I want us to notice two truths from this passage this morning as it relates to the significance of 
Christian relationships. First, we'll notice the danger of drifting. And then we'll notice the duty of disturbing. And as you, as you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, I, I want to I just give us a, a brief summary of the overall message of this book of the Bible for us. The, the, the book of Hebrews is perhaps my favorite book of the Bible. I, I love the book of Hebrews. And I, I love it because it's all about the superiority of Jesus. It's, it's all about, uh, we might call it, uh, Jesus is better. That might be how we subtitle the book of Hebrews. It, 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 it's a book that, that just shows us how Jesus is better. He is superior in every way. In this book, we see that Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the one more excellent than angels. He's the destroyer of death and the devil. He's the greater leader than Moses. He's the superior rest provider than Joshua. He's a more excellent high priest than the Levites because he lives forever to make intercession for the people of God. He's a more sufficient sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats who offered himself as a once for all time atonement for sin, who could actually provide forgiveness and cleansing. He's the hero of our heroes. He's the founder and finisher of our faith. He's, he's the greater Mount Zion that burns with holy fire. He is the one who will never leave us and never forsake us. He's our helper who drives away our fears. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is better. That's what this book is about. You can give Jesus a hand clap if you want. It's okay to say amen right there. Jesus is better, and that's, that's the driving aim of the author of the book of Hebrews. He wants to help us to see how glorious and supreme Jesus is and to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of every promise that was given in the Old Testament. He is the promise of rest, right? So in the Old Testament, you have this promise that the people of God are going to enter into a day of rest, rest from their enemies, rest from their worries, rest from their struggle with sin. Jesus fulfills that promise. He is the promise of reconciliation and redemption. The people of Israel are constantly warring with these other nations. They're constantly warring with themselves. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those promises of rest and redemption. He's the promise of reward. God told Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And through you, Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Jesus fulfills that promise. And so the, the author of Hebrews wants to show us how Jesus is better. And so this book is full. The, the, the letter of Hebrews is full of these amazing gospel promises. I want you to notice them with me in our, in our focus text this morning. Let's pick up in verse 19. It says, brothers and sisters, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let's draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our, our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Do you hear the gospel promises in these verses? Jesus has opened the way for us to enter into the presence of God. Jesus is our high priest who has offered his blood so that our sin has been atoned for. Jesus gives us the hope of cleansing and forgiveness. Our shame and our guilt are, are washed away. And so the author encourages us, because of these amazing truths, to draw near to God in confidence. Isn't this amazing? What's being said is that because of Jesus, we, you and I, 
And we know ourselves. We, we, know, we know that version of ourselves that no one else knows. The thoughts that we think, the things that we've done behind closed doors that we don't want anyone to know about. We know how we've spoken to our kids and how we would never want anyone to hear that. We know, we know the real version of us. And yet what the author of Hebrews is saying is that we can have confidence to approach holy, perfect, almighty God. We don't have to hide from him because Jesus has taken our sins away. We have been forgiven and cleansed. We have boldness to enter the throne room. We use it as a call of worship this morning. But earlier in Hebrews, we are exhorted to approach the throne of grace where we find mercy and, and grace to help us in time of need. What amazing gospel realities. And yet, I want you to notice something. Notice with me that in these, in these words of assurance, in Hebrews chapter 10, there is an implicit warning. Look at verse 23 with me. It says, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Since he who promised is faithful. The author says, let's hold fast and not waver. Don't waver. That Greek word is the word aklenes, and it means unbending or unswerving. It's as if the author is saying, don't let your hope in Jesus bend under the pressures of life. Don't swerve off the path that leads to life. Keep your eyes fixed on God's faithfulness. Do you hear the caution that's being emphasized here? The author is implicitly saying there is a danger of drifting away, of losing heart and, and doubting the promises of God, of, of losing faith in the gospel promises, or worse, of deliberately going on sinning. Look at verse 26. For if we go, if for, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is the knowledge of Jesus and all that he is for us, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. You hear what the author's saying here? The writer is saying that if we live in a deliberate lifestyle of sin, if we hear the gospel, we say, man, that's really good news, and it doesn't bring change in us, if it doesn't bring repentance of sin and a desire to follow after Jesus, if, if the good news of the gospel has truly been applied to our lives, then there is a change in our relationship with sin. But if we go on deliberately sinning, we're in danger of God's judgment. We can have no confidence in those gospel promises. Verse 30 says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The author is saying we must not swerve from the gospel. This is a repeated exhortation throughout the book of Hebrews. I want you to hear a sampling of, of warning passages in this letter. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Bear in mind, if you're immediately like, whoa, this is crazy. The author's writing to Christians. The author's writing to believers. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. Christ was faithful as a son over the household. Again, Jesus is better. 
and we are that household, hear it, if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast. You hear the condition? Hebrews 3.12, watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. For we have become participants in Christ, hear the condition, if we hold firmly until the end, the reality that we had at the start. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. Now, we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises. How do you inherit the promises? Through faith and perseverance. Running parallel to the promises of God. And every assurance of who Jesus is for us is this repeated call to perseverance. Confidence in Christ, it coincides with continuing on steadfastly in the face. We must hold fast our confession to the end. And so listen, the promises of God in the book of Hebrews, in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, in the book of Ephesians, the promises of God are for those who persevere which means that we must not assume that because we've had some past experience that we've arrived, but we must press forward and continue to put our hope in Jesus. So there's this doctrine referred to by theologians as perseverance of the saints. It's a a precious doctrine. And what this doctrine teaches is that a person who has truly experienced salvation in faith, through faith in Jesus, a person whose heart has truly been changed by the Spirit of Christ, who's truly been filled by the Spirit of God, that person can never lose their salvation. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it to the end. And as a church, we confess this doctrine. We believe that what God starts in us, he intends to finish. But I want you to hear me. We do not hold to a cheap version of once saved, always saved. Where subsequent to me confessing faith in Christ, I can go and live however I want it, have no consequences. That's what Diedrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. The New Testament is chock full of these warnings about abandoning the faith. And in fact, Jesus had a lot to say about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, do you remember how he warned of those who on the last day would come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And he will send them away saying, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. For you started off in me and then, no, no, that's not what he said. He says, I never knew you. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13 about a sower and some seed where the sower was a person who was spreading the good news of the kingdom. They were telling the good news about Jesus and they're casting this seed and this seed falls on all types of different soils, some on the path and some on shallow soil and some in the, in the rocks among the thorns and then some on good soil. And Jesus said that that represents different hearts, different ears who hear the good news of the kingdom. For some, the the news never lands at all. 
But for others, here's what's interesting about this parable. There's an initial positive response. The shallow soil, it looks like faith. The sun comes out and scorches it. Not real faith. That's like the one who initially responds to the message of Jesus. And then hard times hit and their faith goes away. He said, for others, it fell among thorns. Again, there's an initial sprouting it looks like faith. The, wor- the worries of the world choke that supposed faith out. Jesus said there were some that fell among good soil where it implanted deeply and it grew and yielded a return. Some hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. And what Jesus is saying in this parable is that only faith that endures to the end, only faith that yields a return that produces the fruit of the Spirit, only that kind of faith is true faith. True faith is abiding faith. It is living faith that lasts. It is faith that treasures Jesus and fights sin and endures to the end. And and so we see this author of, of Hebrews warning us about the danger of drifting where we can think we have faith. We can start off supposedly well. And yet the author says, don't waver in hope. Keep hoping in Jesus. Keep pressing in to Jesus. And this highlights the importance of this second truth that we see in this passage which is the duty of disturbing. Let's notice, secondly, the duty of disturbing. Verse 24. And let us watch out for one another and provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. So I'm a middle child. Some of you were just like, ah, makes so much sense. I'm a middle child, and I have a brother who's three and a half years older than me, a brother who's six years younger than me. I I would tell you that both of my brothers are more uh, intelligent than me, but my my younger brother, he was not only smart, he was shrewd. And he knew how to push my buttons as a kid. He could poke me and provoke me until finally I would hit my tipping point and I would lash out at him. And without fail, I was always the one that got in trouble. I mean, I can hear my dad's voice right now. Andy, he is six years younger than you. Dad, he, he egged me on for hours on end and I finally caved. Didn't matter. And what made it worse was, as soon as I got in trouble, those tears would just magically dry up, and he would have the slyest smirk on his face, like, gotcha again. He later admitted to me that he often put those tears on just to watch me get in trouble. He provoked me. And in verse 24, the the writer of Hebrews tells the church to do, in a sense, what my younger brother did to me. He, he uses this interesting word, paroxysmos. Its, it's, it's natural meaning is to stir up, to agitate, to stimulate. And it's typically used in a negative connotation. It's used for a disturbance in Acts 15 to refer to the, the quarreling between Paul and Barnabas. 
But here the author of Hebrews calls on believers to stir each other up in a positive way, to to get one another riled up to love and good works. As a follower of Christ, you are called and I am called to, we're called to stimulate one another to obey and follow Jesus. In fact, notice that verse 24 says, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. This, this language of, of watching out from one another comes from a word that means to consider or, or to look closely. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told to consider Jesus. It's the same word. It means to, to meditate, to give a due consideration of. But here, the author is saying that we, we should be concerned, we should consider one another. The author is saying that we should care for one another, that we should direct our minds to one another and and should think about ways that we can provoke one another to love and good works. We should concern ourselves with urging each other on in the race of discipleship. And so I I think I've shared this before. Back in my high school days, I I ran cross country. I was probably the world's worst cross country runner. But I ran and there was always a point in the race, typically around mile two, where I just flat wanted to quit. It was hard. My lungs were burning. My legs would feel heavy. And in every single race that I ever ran, I, I felt like quitting. The, the thought crossed my mind. I, I should just, I could pull out right here. And yet there was always someone that was either a part of the, the JV team or the girls' cross-country team or a parent who is strategically placed kind of right at that two-mile mark. And right when I would be thinking about quitting, they, they would see me and they would begin to urge me on. Only one more mile. You, you got this. Come on, Andy, catch that guy. You can catch that guy in front of you. Come on, you you got more in you. You can keep going. These encouragers along the course would help me keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I needed that in those races. And church, the truth is we need that in our spiritual race. Because the sad truth is I'm not always motivated to follow Jesus. I'm not always motivated to love my wife. I'm not always motivated to disciple my kids. I'm not always motivated to pursue holiness, to say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. I'm not always motivated to to love my neighbor or to talk to my friends about Jesus. I'm not always motivated to live as a servant to speak up for the vulnerable and the oppressed, to defend the cause of the oppressed and the widow. I'm not always motivated to leverage my life for the kingdom of God. Often I'm trying to build my own kingdom. My zeal is often weak. And more often than not, my faith feels more like a flickering wick that's about to go out than it does a burning fire. And in those times, one of the key ways that God has kept me going, has kept the lantern of my faith lit, has been through a brother or a sister who has come along and added a little gospel fuel to the reservoir. If I can be really transparent with you, I've I've been feeling some discouragement in this season of my life in ministry. And And I'm not telling you this 
for sympathy or an attaboy after the service. I'm, I'm just being transparent with you. And I'm just admitting this. I'm boasting in my weakness because just this week, unsolicited, I've had four different brothers reach out to me. Now, maybe that's because I'm, I'm, <laughs> my emotions are being worn out on my sleeve and it's obvious, but maybe, just maybe, it's because God loves me. And one of the primary means of grace that he has given his church to urge each other on is one another. Had a brother call me this week. He lives in Colorado. Man, just felt like calling you. Just wanted to tell you, man, keep, do not grow weary in doing good. The Lord's using you. It was like oxygen. Had another brother. The Lord prompted me to call you. Just want you to know I love you. God's using you. I needed to hear that because so often I feel like I'm dropping the ball. I feel like giving up. And I tell you these things again to boast in my weakness and to make the point that I'm your pastor and I need to be stirred up. I need someone stirring me up to love and good works, to not grow weary in doing good. And, and you need that too. We need that from each other. And so the writer seems to be saying that we need each other to stir and to be stirred. We need a sister or a brother to come along and to give us some gospel mojo. And we need that brother and sister. They need that from us as well. This is a big part of what it means to be a Christian and to belong to the church. Pastor John Piper says that the aim of our lives is not just loving and doing good deeds, but helping to stir others up to love. In good deeds. We're on the team together and we're running to the finish line. And so we have to encourage one another to keep on going. And naturally, this means that we need to regularly rub shoulders with one another. Look at verse 25. It says, let us not neglect to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. It's hard to spur each other on if we're not with each other, if we're not around each other, to interact with one another. We can't encourage and be encouraged if we're never, never together. And if I can just get on my soapbox for a minute, this is why the idea of an online campus or online church is a farce. Live streams and podcasts should be for the invalid and shut-ins. Not for the lazy and the consumeristic. It's for those who can't make it to worship. And in such cases, we should be going to visit them regularly because the bottom line is we need face-to-face interaction with one another on a regular basis. We need to constantly stir and be stirred. We need to be together, the author says, to encourage one another. Now, I realize I'm preaching to the choir. But I want to press in here because I think for most of us, when we think that, not neglecting the gathering of yourselves together, we think about this time, and we need this time. We need this time to sing together, to hug one another, to sip coffee and talk together, to sit under the word of God together. Every week when, I, when we come to this time, it feels like a family reunion. I just love you guys. I, I, love, I love the environment that we have here. It, it feels like family. My faith is stirred up when we sing together. Wasn't it good to worship this morning? 
But I actually think the most natural application of this text takes place in what our church calls gospel communities and DNA groups. So if you're visiting this morning, gospel communities are small groups within our church designed to help us increasingly know and follow Jesus, care for each other like family, and live on mission to make disciples. These, these groups are, are time that we devote to be together each week, but they're more than just a time slot. They're like little families where we care for one another, we know each other, we press into each other's lives. Within each gospel community are what we call DNA groups, which are groups of about three to six, either guys or or girls, that that get together weekly to, to go deeper into God's word and to confess sin and to pray for one another. And we are a church of these groups. This is how we have organized ourselves to make sure that every person at Emmanuel is known and loved and cared for and invested in and, and is growing. They are how we're trying to ensure that no one falls through the cracks. They're, they're a way that we make sure that every person here is regularly looked at in the eyes and asked, how are you? No, 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 really, how are you? How's your soul? How are you doing? How's your marriage? What's the Lord been teaching you lately? How's your time in the word? How can I pray for you? It's through our GCs and our DNA groups that we stir one another up to love and to good works and to remind one another that this life is all about knowing Jesus and making him known. That is why we exist as individuals. That is why we exist as a church. And so I just want to make a few points of application here as we close. If you're, if you're newer to our church, I want to invite you to check out a group. Our church, fundamentally, is a collection of of gospel communities. That's how we are organized. That's who we are. That's how we're living together. That that, that is our primary discipleship environment. Now, that doesn't mean from time to time we we have trainings and workshops and we find other ways to get together and we see the need for that. But the primary way that we are trying to make disciples is through gospel communities. And so I want to invite you to check out a group. Come by the Connect table at the end of the service. I'll be there. James Fuquay will be there. We'd love to talk to you, to get your information, to tell you more about how you can get plugged in to a group. Others of you have been at Emmanuel for a time now. In the urban vernacular, it's been a minute. And the fact that you're not in a group yet tells me something. It tells me that you don't think that they're necessary for your walk with Jesus. You would say, hey, Emmanuel's my church. It's where I attend worship. These are my people. And yet you're not in a group. And that tells me that you don't think that they're necessary. Let me give you two reasons why they are. One, following Jesus is hard. And you need some people in your life regularly pointing you back to Christ and reminding you of what life is all about. You need people pressing into you and asking hard questions. People that are praying with you and praying for you. The way that God intends to keep you faithful to the end is through a few primary things. How is your faith going to be proven to be real? How are you going to make it to the end? There's a few key things that God has given us and made clear in his word. The word of God, prayer, and the people of God. 
That's how God keeps us going. That's how he quickens our faith. And so without these, you may think you have faith now. There's a good chance it's going to fizzle out. If you neglect the Christian community, you are neglecting a primary means of persevering grace that God has given you. Number two, God has called you to be an instrument of mercy, to be an agent of agitation, to be a disturber of encouragement in other believers' lives. And your choice not to engage in gospel community, your choice to to not be in a DNA group, with few exceptions, is a selfish decision. It, It tells me that you still think church is all about you. Can I drop a bomb on you? It's not. It's about Jesus. And it's about your brothers and sisters. And so you don't get to do the Christian life on your terms. That's an American dream lie. That's that's the culture informing your Christianity. You don't get to do this thing at the speed at which you want to do it. Jesus is inviting you all the way in. He's saying, come to me. Walk with me. Now, the good news is, he says, I'm carrying the heavy burden. I want to give you rest. And part of the way that Jesus wants to give you rest is through your brothers and sisters who bear the load with you. Part of the way that Jesus bears the load for you is through your brothers and sisters. But he's inviting you in. He's saying, I want you to come all the way in. You don't get to do this on your terms. It's on my terms. And and you are unavoidably reconciled, not just to Jesus. You are reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ. There is no vertical without a horizontal. We're called into community together. And Jesus has commissioned you to stir others up to love and good works. And so some of you need to get in the game. Now finally, I want to speak to groups and specifically to group leaders. Some of our groups need to get serious about the call to stir each other up to love and good works. I love a good supper club. I like good meals. I like good fellowship. But listen, supper club is not going to spur anyone on to follow Christ by itself. So listen, let's, let's enjoy our good food. Let's, let's get together as GCs. Let's get some GCs together. and Let's watch the Super Bowl next week. Let's enjoy that. Let's talk sports. Let's talk life. But let's also pray together. Let's also study God's word together. Let's also press into each other's lives and look each other in the eye and ask soul-level questions. What if we, what if we came into our, our, our gospel community hangout times asking this question, God, how do you want to use me today to stir someone up to love and good works? How might you want to use me to spur someone else's faith on? How, how might you want uh, to, to use me to speak a word of encouragement? Is there a hug that I need to give? Single guys, be careful with that question. Is there a prayer I need to pray to help urge a sister on in hope? As we come together, we need to be reminding one another, as as the author of Hebrews does, that the day is approaching, that Jesus is coming back again soon. And so we want to live our lives in light of his return. And so when we come together, let's encourage one another to hold on to hope in Jesus without wavering. Brother, Jesus is coming soon. Look to him. Don't 
Grow weary in doing good. Press on. Keep the faith. I love you. I'm with you. I'm praying for you. That's what our times together are about. So let's press on in our GCs. Let's not neglect the gathering of ourselves together, encouraging one another as the day draws near. So at the end of the Pilgrim's Progress, eventually Christian and hopeful, they, they make it all the way to the edge of Beulah Land, which is where the celestial city is located. And to get there, they have to cross the river without a bridge. And so Christian begins to try to swim the river, but as he gets in the midst of the river, he becomes overwhelmed. He begins to sink until hope reminds him of Christ's love and all the promises that are his. And Christian presses on. He emerges safely on the other side. And when they get to the other side, he and Hopeful are, are welcomed at the celestial city joyously. And there's a celebration. And church, I want us to be like Hopeful and Christian. I, I want to spur each other on in this journey by reminding each other of, of Christ's love. We are loved. All the promises are for us. They're ours. So let us not waver in hope, but let us press on to the end of this life where we will celebrate in the next. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would make us to be the church that you want us to be. That you would help us to consider, to actually give thought to how we might watch out for one another, to provoke one another to love and good works. God, help us to speak the truth in love to one another so that we all grow up in every way into Christ Jesus. Help us to watch out for one another, to have mercy on those who are doubting, even snatching some out of sin who have lost their way. God, help us to help one another persevere in the faith, to encourage each other on. And God, we pray this for the glory of your name in us and through us and in your church. Amen.